Welcome to Oncopharm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I am a professor of pharmacy practice here at the supporting sponsor of Oncopharm, ETSU's Bill Gadd College of Pharmacy. This is going to probably be our last big episode of the year, and I've got a lot to get to from Ash. Um, and most of the updates, really all the big updates, we're going to focus on uh, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Uh, so let's start with the Polarix trial. This was published um, in tandem in the New England Journal of Medicine with a presentation at, at ASH. This is a comparison of ARCHOP versus polituzumab, the dotin um, substituted for vincristine in ARCHOP. They give it some sort of strange name. I kind of think of it as ARCHOP versus ARCHIP, R-C-H-P-P. Replace the O, the oncovin, with polituzumab, the dotin. Um, now these were, um, th- there's an odd thing here. It looks like RCHOP versus RCHOP with polituzumab in place of vincristine, but there's two additional cycles of rituximab after the six cycles of chemoimmunotherapy, which is a little odd. Um, they're actually dated to do, um, uh, you know, like two cycles of RCHOP after four cycles, or sorry, two cycles of rituximab after four cycles of RCHOP if your, uh, your IPI score is zero, which we'll talk about in a second. But anyway, I think it's easiest to think of this as our shop versus our chip. Um, so less than 900 patients, like 800, and, I don't know, 860, 880 or so, um, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma patients, first-line treatment, uh, ECOG 0, 1, or 2, and an international prognostic index of 2 to 5. Uh, so the IPI scoring includes these, uh, these factors, age above 60, that'd be a point, uh, abnormally high LDH, uh, just anything above normal, that's a point. Uh, ECOG performance status 2, 3, or 4, that's a point. Uh, stage 3 or 4, that's a point. And then more than one side of external disease is a point. So you get a score from, from 2 to 5. So this is looking at IPI 2 to 5, so, so the higher risk folks on that angle, intermediate higher risk folks, okay? So demographics here, these patients, median age is 65. 69% were over the age of 60, so consistent with a lot of what we see in our our diffuse large B-cell lymphoma population. 90% were stage three and four. Not surprising if you're only gonna enroll IPI two to five and eliminate ECOG three and four or exclude them from the trial, you're gonna have to make up a lot of those those, uh, poor prognostic factors somewhere. In this case, it's stage three and four, 90% stage three and four. Let's see, 80% of folks were uh, were ECOG zero or one, 16%. Uh, ECOG2, uh, which is more than you often see in cancer studies. Um, usually it's about 5% ECOG2. Uh, 44% had bulky disease, which means 56%, the majority, had non-bulky disease. And I'll, I point that out because if you had stage 1 or 2 non-bulky disease, which is, um, uh, you know, a, a lymph node side disease less than 7.5 centimeters in diameter, they can just get RCHOP times 3 cycles followed by radiation. Folks in this study could get radiation at the investigator uh, discretion. I think an important um, difference, minor difference in the baseline demographics is the folks on the polituzumab arm, um, 56% of them had germinal center B-cell type, all right, which has a, is a better prognosis compared to activated B-cell type. So in the germinal center folks, it's 56% of those uh, in the polar arm uh, or 50% in RCHI. That's a difference about 6%. And in the activated B-cell type, 31% in polo, lower than 35% in RCHOP, difference of 4%. So there's a, you know, there's an imbalance in that, that germinal center type compared to activated B-cell type favoring polituzumab hey, by about an absolute difference of five points. Now, there are 14% unclassified here. This may have something to do with, 
you know, the, 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 uh, the international nature of this study. So certainly those numbers could end up evening out if those 14% could have been classified uh, or, or maybe not. Um, but I think that's an, a caveat to keep in mind. Uh, let's see, double expressor, you know, about 40% in, in, in each arm, um, 38% lower in polo versus 41% hard chop. Now, double or triple hit was 8% versus 6% more double or triple hit uh, in, in the polo group, which is probably more important than the double expressor from a prognostic standpoint. So, you know, they look pretty similar between groups. Maybe the polotuzumab arm is a little bit easier to treat if you just look at that germinal uh, center B cell type. Uh, compared to activated B cell type. All right, so the primary endpoint here is progression-free survival, which is a, a bit of a puzzle uh, as a primary endpoint. Overall survival should be the key. Progression-free survival, yeah, I'd say it's reasonable as a primary endpoint for a new drug, say for uh, a disease that is indolent, where, where we, we don't cure folks, so maybe CLL, maybe multiple myeloma. This is diffuse large B cell lymphoma in elderly folks. You know, if there's going to be an overall survival difference, uh, you, you should be able to see it. Uh, so ding, minus one for PFS as a primary endpoint. Now, there is a statistically significant improvement in progression-free survival in those who got polituzumab versus those who got uh, vincristine. Um, yeah, why don't they just call this polituzumab versus vincristine? That's really what this is. Um, so those, those rates are 76.7%. And the polar arm, that's a two-year progression-free survival landmark versus 70.2%, a difference of 6.7%. That's after a median follow-up of 28 months. Uh, stratified hazard ratio of 0.73 with a confidence interval that goes from 0.57 up to 0.95, not crossing one. P-value, 0.02. So the difference there is 6.5%. Uh, that would be clinically relevant if this were the right endpoint of overall survival. Uh, now, if you look at who went on, because this is progression, so what do we do with these folks with, with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma if they progress uh, or they relapse uh, after after RCHOP? Well, they would go to auto-stem cell transplant or maybe CAR-T, which we'll get to uh, in a second. So subsequent lymphoma treatment lower in the polo group, 22.5% versus 30.3%, delta 7.5%. Now, that includes radiation, some local therapies. If you look at systemic therapy, it's 17% versus 23%. The delta there is the exact same 6.5% as a difference in progression-free survival at two years. Uh, who got um, a stem cell transplant? 3.9% with POLA versus 0.1% with RCHOP. Uh, CAR-T, 2% with POLA versus 3.6% with, um, with RCHOP. So the overall survival is the same, right? This Kappa-Meyer curves are superimposed. There's, there's, you, you look at it, there's, there's no difference. So what this, what this says is, you know, two years later, there's an equal chance of being alive whether you get the, the more expensive polituzumab vedotin-containing regimen or the prior tried-and-true standard of care RCHOP. Now, the, the better PFS with polituzumab, you know, it's probably not worth the cost knowing that we have really great salvage options afterwards with uh, salvage chemo and, uh, and transplant. Uh, and it's possible that PFS benefit we see with polituzumab is explained by having more folks with germinal uh, center B type there. Uh, don't know. They're interestingly though, as I say that, if you look in the subgroup uh, analysis, which is um, hypothesis generating, it looks to me like the largest group that benefited from polituzumab from a progression-free survival standpoint. They don't have an ov the overall survival subgroup analysis, but from a PFS benefit, the activated B cell type, which there were, you know, a decent number of, like a third of the trial were activated B cell type. There was an 
efficacy signal with polytuzumab, efficacy signal with polytuzumab vidotin. That hazard ratio was 0.4 for PSF, much lower than the overall hazard ratio of 0.7 for the whole cohort. And that confidence interval was 0.2 to 0.6. Uh, there's, as I mentioned, there's no subgroup analysis for overall survival, so maybe you could argue if, you know, when we see the, the mature and the final overall survival analysis, and we see a subgroup analysis that, that maybe polituzumab is what you should use, maybe for those ABC folks. That's not a thing to do yet, I don't think. It's a thing to look for, I believe. But for now, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same, and RCHOP is still the king. Okay. Now, if RCHOP did not work for these folks, what we you typically would do is you would go to salvage chemo uh, if they weren't cured with their RCHOP. Now, that could be because uh, their cancer does not slow down at all in RCHOP and it's refractory. You, know, you don't get a response. Or it could be they relapse, okay? Well, then we give them salvage chemo with you know typically a platinum-containing regimen because they haven't seen platinum yet, like a DHAP, uh, something like that. Um, you know, maybe a rice regimen, you know, who knows, something like that. Uh, some sort of salvage chemo followed by an autologous stem cell transplant. That would kind of be the, the, the standard of care. Uh, and if you look at our favorite guidelines, if folks do not have a response to salvage chemo and they're not chemo, their disease is not chemosensitive, it doesn't make sense to give them even higher doses of chemo, then you might go to CAR-T is, is kind of what we would do standard practice around this country. So we have uh, three... CAR-T uh, randomized studies presented at ASH. Uh, Zuma 7 and Belinda were also published uh, in tandem in the New England Journal of Medicine. And then Transform, which I won't talk about a whole lot. Transform is lysocell. Uh, Zuma 7 is uh, AxiCell and Belinda is TIS-cell. Uh, TIS-angelic-lu-cell and Actycaptogene. People ask, what do you gotta do to be a podcast host? You gotta be able to say Actycaptogene. That's all it is. All right, so let's talk about Belinda first. Okay, so this is T-cell versus salvage chemo followed by autotransplant. No difference. No difference in the primary outcome of event-free survival. The event-free survival curves are superimposable, okay? But let's talk a little bit more uh, about this. The way this worked is these patients, I think they're about 300-ish patients, 320 patients, 340 in this study. So 162 are randomized to T-cell, okay? And the other half, 160 are randomized to standard of care. Salvage chemo followed by autotransplant. Now, if those 160 assigned to salvage chemo uh, had progression to disease or even just stable disease at 12 weeks, if three months later their disease had not responded, then they crossed over to T-cell, which is probably what we would do, right? If the chemo is not working, this is not a metastatic disease where stable diseases may be a reasonable outcome. You know, you got metastatic you know, second line, non-small cell lung cancer, you're given docetaxel, stable disease for six months is not a bad outcome. Stable disease for diffuse large B cell lymphoma, not good because we can cure these folks, okay? So those folks with stable disease at 12 weeks crossed over to T-cell, all right? So if you look at the standard care group, uh, you know, half of them ended up crossing over like 80 to the T-cell, uh, if, if I have my numbers right here. Uh, of those in standard care, only a third actually got the autotransplant, right? Um, and then uh, initially, and then their 19% total of that 160 in the standard care home actually got a transplant after a second line salvage chemo regimen. Uh, as far as the TIS cell group, 155 of the 162 assigned to TIS cell actually got TIS cell. So there's some manufacturing success. That's a 97%, 96% hit rate. Um, so, you know, you had a lot of people end up getting TIS cell 
on this uh, on this study, like three quarters got <laughs> to Sangelic loose cell, uh, even if they were randomized to standard of care. So perhaps it's not surprising that there wasn't an, a, you know an event-free survival because of that high crossover. But this to me seems to mirror what you would expect in clinical practice as how these patients were treated. I will say we are not a CAR T center. So I don't have a direct experience, uh, you know, treating folks with CAR-D, but from, from reading the literature, this is what this looks like to me. Uh, again, no event-free survival benefit um, uh, for T-cell um, with half of the standard care group crossing over to T-cell per protocol. They, they wrote that into the protocol. I'll also point out, these are relapsed refractory. It's relapsed within 12 months, so early relapse or refractory, and it's probably a good idea not to do that like, when, like on my notes right now, it's R-R. Relapse refractory, sounds so good to say them together. We probably ought to do a better job of separating those out. You know, in the T-cell study in Belinda, two-thirds of these folks are refract, primary refractory, never had a response to disease. It means a third are relapsed. And a relapse at three months is a scarier disease uh, than relapse at nine or 11 months or 12 months, okay? So... Really, we're talking about, I think, more primary refractory disease is what we're seeing uh, uh, in these studies. Okay, so now let's go to Zuma 7. This is AxiCell. This is 74% of folks in this AxiCell study are primary refractory. Uh, primary endpoint here is, is event-free survival, the very, very impressive event-free survival Kapmeyer curves. For the AxiCell arm, that event-free survival plateaus at 50%. Standard of care which is salvage chemo followed by autotransplant plateaus at 20%. That's about what the plateau is in Belinda with standard of care is around 20%. Uh, median event-free survival, 8.3 months versus two months, favoring AxiCell. Crossover was not planned. Um, about the same, you know, 50% of folks in the standard of care group responded to salvage chemo, uh, but again, only third actually went on to receive autotransplant, mirroring what you saw in the T-cell group, you know, uh, half the folks dropped out, and here 56% of those in the, the Zuma 7 study who were randomized to, to standard of care, which was salvage chemo followed by auto, 56% received, quote, subsequent cellular immunotherapy. And, you know, we assume that is CAR-T. Uh, now, what type of CAR-T or what delays there were for CAR-T, we don't know. It's not in the manuscript, not in the, the supplement appendix. I would have to assume, and I think it's reasonable to assume, uh, you know, it's a, maybe a trust but verify situation. I think it's reasonable to assume that the time to gain those folks CAR T is later because is longer than it would have been in Belinda because it wasn't part of a design crossover of the study, uh, and therefore maybe not what you know, maybe not ideal because they would have been off study. Uh, and and you know you don't have the the um, if it's on study, you know the company. You know, in, in the case of T-cell, I think that's Novartis, they're going to be already plugged in, already going to have the patient's information. It's just one less hurdle to get them their CAR-T, which is a bit of a, of a hassle sometimes. Um, so overall, 94% of folks randomized to AxiCell got AxiCell, so good manufacturing success. I mean, there's a really large, you know, event-free survival benefit, progression-free survival benefit. Overall survival benefit, it's not there yet. Uh, hazard ratio is 0.73, constant interval 0.53 to 1.01. Pretty large constant interval, crosses one. Now, this is an interim analysis, full analysis to come, all right? So, if we do, you know, that dangerous, you know, cross-trial comparison, you know, in both these arms, the 12-month event-free survival is 20% in the standard care arms across studies, okay? 
So it doesn't look like there's a big difference in you know the efficacy of standard of care. Now, it's really hard to compare the demographics of one study to the other, especially uh, in these two studies because they actually report their baseline demographics differently with regards to, say, germinal uh, you know, with germinal center B type and activated B cell type and um, time from relapse, things like that. Very heterogeneous patients, it looks like, okay? And the 12-month event-free survival with CAR-T is 50% with AXI cell versus 20% with TIS cell. This could be, you know, maybe the TIS cell patient population was sicker, more, you know, harder to treat. Um, maybe um, the... Uh, you know, maybe axi cell is better. You know, they have different co-stimulatory domains, different viral vectors that could be. Uh, it also could be we're looking at event-free survival as our endpoint. It's not overall survival, which is dichotomous. You, you die or don't. Now, the event-free survival definition is a little bit different between Belinda and between Zuma 7. For Belinda, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, stable disease or progression of disease by week 12 or death, okay? So if after three months... You know, anytime you have progression disease, that's an event, uh, and is, is counted as event-free survival. You die, that's an event. You have stable disease at three weeks, not an event yet. But stable disease at 12 weeks, that becomes an event, and those folks on the standard of care would have been randomized to, um, uh, to uh, uh, back over to, to TIS cell. So not surprising that maybe we don't see any overall survival benefit in Belinda. If we do see, you know, a benefit in Zuma, and perhaps the event-free survival benefit you see is related to Zuma 7's uh, maybe more liberal definition of event-free survival, which is progression of disease, same with Belinda, death, same as with Belinda, starting a new treatment, which is going to be in the eye of the beholder of when you start new treatment, um, st uh, stable disease, if the bet was the best response, up to 150 days, which is five months, right? So Zuma 7, patients can have stable disease on salvaged chemo for an extra two months uh, before that would be considered an event. So that's obviously going to make a difference in a time to event endpoint like event free survival when you're just not counting the event for two months later. Okay. So big caveat there to look at, uh, in my opinion, as, as a non CAR T expert. So despite that caveat, it's a pretty impressive, you know, Kaplan-Meier curve. You know, it looks like axis cells probably going to be, you know, I've, I've, people have debated, is this a new standard of care for second line? Is this really second line with so many folks being primary refractory, uh, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma? Um, you know, they're both, you know, it, it's a little bit hard to say. Time will tell when we see more overall survival analysis. Now, I, I, does this change practice? I, I don't know um, because I think folks are already doing a lot of, you know, how they designed the, the Belinda study uh, and even the, the transform study of Lysocell, which is, you know, if you're not having a great response to salvage chemo, go straight to CAR-T if you can. And, you know, here we refer patients four hours away often for auto transplants or for CAR-T. And sometimes patients don't want to travel. And, you know, you end up sometimes doing salvage chemo when it's maybe not in their best interest because of the feasibility of starting something quickly. So it's a little bit like um, I'm going through this right now. I'm, I'm going to trade in uh, my my. 11, 12-year-old Subaru Outback for a, a new one, and it's a little bit like buying a car today uh, in, in America. You know, the access is not there, and sometimes what you want uh, is not what you're going to get. So even though you may prefer AxiCell, uh, just because it had, had a, quote, positive study compared to a non-positive study with TisCell, um, that doesn't mean you may be able to get access to it based on your, your site 
and things like that. Access to leukapheresis, same thing with autotransplant. So, you know, you know, I'm not really sure this changes this practice a whole lot here. So, um, so if, if we take a step back here and look at you know treatment of diffuse RGB cell lymphoma, first line in my opinion is still RCHOP question mark, wait and see if, if a subgroup like the ABC group uh, had some overall survival benefit from polituzumab once we get the full overall survival analysis. Now, relapse refractory, not the same. Most of these folks in both the AXI cell and TIS cell study were primary refractory, and it certainly makes sense for those folks that, you know, maybe CAR-T, AXI cell, if you can, is would be the preferred way to go versus a, a salvage chemo followed by transplant approach. Um, kind of looks that way. To me, it, it looks that way. I, I would not say that uh, my confidence is 95% confident to say that, though, after looking at that. Now, if you're considering doing, you know, CAR-T right away for this primary refractory or early relapse within 12 months of treatment, you can. But if the relapse is more than a year later, the standard is still salvage chemo followed by autotransplant. And then if there's relapse after auto stem cell transplant, then that's where historically, you know, in the, the time this podcast has been live, uh, that's basically the CAR-T era. That would be the role of CAR-T from that standpoint. Uh, one other thing uh, from Ash, uh, I've seen people talking about this on Twitter before, which is high-dose methotrexate for CNS prophylaxis for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. And I have to admit, I've only heard of that from other people on Twitter talking about it. I've never worked at a center where we did that uh, through three centers between school, residency, and, and clinical practice. I don't know where that data uh, uh, come from. I've never had to review it because I've n never been never been recommended. But there are there were some data at ASH that, that basically confirm high dose uh, methotrexate is not effective at preventing CNS relapse for diffuse large B cell lymphoma. I've even seen somebody said on Twitter this puts the nail in the coffin on that. Uh, all right, couple other quick hitters. Uh, last uh, last time on the pod, uh, when I was live, uh, probably two weeks ago, I mentioned uh, maybe in an ash preview that desatinib 50 milligram was something new at ash. That was from last year's ash. I'm sorry. I only bring that back one to apologize for uh, misreading 2020 from 2021. Uh, I did have it was a pandemic year, correct? Uh, to point out that there was a, I believe it was JAMA Oncology. Maybe it was Lancet Oncology. I think it was JAMA Oncology. A study from Japan using desatinib 20 milligram um, uh, with decent results. Uh, so slightly different patient population, uh, maybe from a SIP uh, P450 metabolism standpoint. But I think worth mentioning that um, certainly those patients that aren't, you know, if all I got is desatinib and they're having pleural fusions, I feel more and more comfortable re-challenging at a lower dose. Um, from a, a cancer standpoint, uh, satorisip, the, the uh, KRAS G12C uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitor that's approved in not metastatic non-small cell lung cancer was studied in colon cancer. KRAS mutations are present in 40% of colon cancer patients, but that specific uh, 12GC mutation, only 3%. Uh, satorisip study in those patients in colon cancer, like a nine point something overall response rate. Pretty disappointing no role for satorisip going forward in colon cancer, it would appear as a, as a single agent. Uh, maybe the, the most interesting thing I, I, I came across in the last week or two is this, uh, this article published in uh, Lance Oncology um, looking at HLA-A star O3 as a, a basically a negative correlate for response to immune checkpoint inhibitors. So this is looking, uh, pulling a whole bunch of data uh, specifically from, I think these are tizolizumab studies. Uh, they're looking at uh, 
no, checkmates that are looking at some, some checkmate studies. So immune checkpoint inhibitors really across renal and mostly bladder cancer. Uh, and they found, you know, if you've got two copies of HLA, uh, a star O3, if you're homozygous for that star O3, uh, genotype, you have less response with immune checkpoint inhibitor compared to heterozygous and compared to, to a non star O3, uh, genotype. And I think we're going to see more and more of this, uh, you know, how well you respond to immune checkpoint inhibitor. Some of that's going to depend on the disease and how much pdl one is expressed. And some of that's going to depend on, you know, the shape of your immune system uh, and, and how your immune system and your T cells are able uh, actually to, uh, to recognize and to bind to antibodies. So I would expect to see more of that uh, down, uh, down, the ri- down, the, down the road, down the line, down the rind is what I said as a podcaster. All right. Well, that is what I have. Uh, we'll have something next week on the 23rd. Not sure what that'll be yet, but there'll be a little something for the holidays uh, coming out. Um, and uh, thank you all for listening. I appreciate uh, all the comments, um, uh, all the reviews and ratings and sort of things. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at FarmDeetNib, and you can follow the podcast on both Twitter and Instagram at OncoFarmPod. And until I talk to you again, remember... Oh, 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 no, no, no. One other thing. One other thing. I knew there was one else, another thing I wanted to say. Uh, the music going to have to stop. Um, I, I did not know this because I've, um, for my own mental health, have sort of checked out from new COVID news. But there was a recent EUA emergency use authorization for, this is a branded product, Evusheld, which is a combination. It's not a combination. It's like two doses. One dose of Tixagevimab and one dose of uh, Silgevimab. Uh, these are monoclonal antibodies uh, to the COVID-19 spike protein. And they're engineered, there's a, there's a specific amino acid substitution to have a longer half-life. Most monoclonal antibodies have a half-life of like two to three weeks. These have a half-life of like 80 days, three months or so. And this EUA, this approval, is for COVID-19 pre-exposure prophylaxis for either people who have a true allergy to a COVID vaccine component or for our purposes, those who are immunocompromised. They have to be 12 and up, uh, and they have to be 40 kilograms. So immunocompromised to the point that they would not mount an adequate immune response to vaccination. So imagine somebody newly diagnosed with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, and they're going to get a drug like rituximab that's going to deplete their antibodies for for 6 to 12 months, and we know they're probably not going to develop much of it or any antibody response to a vaccine. There is an option to give them this, this antibody. It comes... It's not co-formulated. It's more like co-packaged. And uh, it's one dose of each, one time. Uh, let me find it here. The administration instructions are, um, you know, consecutive 150 milligram of each antibody. Intramuscular injections, quote, preferably one in each of the gluteal muscles. Talk about the pain in the... Um, anyway, one-time dose. And, you know, the primary endpoint here in the Provent study, which was 5,000 pages, only 7% had cancer. So our efficacy here is... Uh, we don't know how effective this is. So I am mentioning this just so everyone can do their own research on this. Uh, so symptomatic COVID-19 over a six-month period, so this provides some protection for six months, was 0.2% uh, in those who got placebo, or in those who got the antibodies versus 1% in those who got um, the uh, uh, placebo. So it's a 77% relative risk reduction, absolute risk reduction of 0.8%, but we know these folks have a high morbidity and high mortality. Our patients they get this. I know if I was going to be getting, uh, you know, R-chop or I had a loved one getting R-chop or something like that, that had not been vaccinated, I would want them to get this, uh, especially with the 
the Delta surges that are happening and the Omicron surges that are, you know, bound to happen here in this country. Okay, that's all that I have. And remember uh, what I like to say, happy holidays and doses matter. Thank you.